Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, Ohio voters last week approved a ballot measure to amend the state constitution to protect abortion access. The vote was the latest in a string of state-level victories for abortion rights supporters since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. And abortion rights is seen as the reason behind Democratic victories in Virginia last week. Democrats are hoping the issue's potency will continue to galvanize voters, especially women and younger voters, and lead to electoral wins in 2024. We'll take a closer look at what the Ohio outcome means for the future of abortion rights nationwide and what impact it could have on the next election. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Ever since the Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade last year, Many outside California are living with severe restrictions or outright bans on abortion access. But last week, Ohio enshrined abortion rights in their state constitution, marking the seventh time in seven attempts since the Dobbs decision that abortion rights supporters have won their ballot initiative fights. Many also believe the issue has often led Democrats to outperform expectations in midterms. This hour, we look at both the significance of the Ohio vote in the state of abortion access nationwide and at abortion's role in shaping the political landscape of the 2024 election. And joining us, Rebecca Traster, writer-at-large for New York Magazine and The Cut. You can read her latest column, Where is the Biden Abortion Agenda, at thecut.com. Rebecca, so glad to have you. Thanks for having me. Michelle Goodwin is also with us, professor of constitutional law and global health policy at Georgetown Law. Professor Goodwin, always good to have you as well. Thank you so much for inviting me on. It's great to be with you. So, Rebecca, let me start with you. Back in March, you wrote a cover story for New York Magazine called Abortion Wins Elections. So I'm guessing you weren't entirely surprised by what happened in Ohio? No, I wasn't entirely surprised, although that that piece also came after it had already been a winning 
issue in multiple elections in the midterms where Democrats were predicted to perform very poorly. And in fact, well overperformed expectations, flipped state legislatures, one ballot referendum, flipped the Michigan state legislature Democratic for the first time in 40 years. Um, you know, it had been a set of tremendous wins in the midterm. And of course, the individual ballot initiatives and referendum votes um, that we'd seen on abortion. But that piece, um, which had the big headline, abortions <laughs> win elections, um, actually was trying to look at both the history and complexity of legislating this issue, given that there actually isn't a lot of muscle memory on the part of the Democratic Party on how to do this, because the Roe decision that came down in 1973 um, had sort of halted what was then a burgeoning uh, project that at that time was pretty bipartisan um, to try to legislate access to abortion on both state and just was beginning to think about doing it on a federal level when Roe came down. And so that piece, which had the catchy headline, actually was attempting to tell some of that history and also what is happening right now on, when it comes to both state and federal attempts to legislate access to abortion in the wake of the Dobbs decision. Yeah. So remind us what happened last Tuesday on the ballot in Ohio, because abortion rights supporters didn't have to win just one vote there, right? They had to essentially win two. They sure did. And there was a lot of confusion. I think, you know, one of the reasons that we still have to have these big headlines that just say that in this sort of blunt, over blunt way, um, abortion wins elections, right, is because there is so much doubt still, even having won seven straight ballot referendums. And Ohio is a great example of this because what anti-abortion Republicans in Ohio did was try to actually undercut majority rule by saying, actually, maybe the ballot referendum won't count unless you can get 60 percent. Right. And we're going to vote. We're going to have a vote in August on whether or not basically your vote can count as part of a majority come November. And there was that vote in August. It won overwhelmingly. Right. Especially especially notable. Um, you know, in that it was at this completely crazy summertime election. It was not a direct vote about abortion. It was a vote about voting. Um, and then there was going to be this, then there's the the actual referendum that just happened last Tuesday. And there was a lot of concern. Republicans did try to confuse things. They named both of them issue one, the one that happened in in August and the one that happened in November, they changed the language so that of the bill so that instead of referring to a fetus, it referred to an unborn child. They um, it, it was they tried to confuse people because you had to vote yes on one of them and no on the other. It was no in August and yes in November if you wanted to preserve access to abortion and try it in the in a, the Ohio Constitution and the political press and I think many in the party were very worried. This was going to be too confusing. It was going to be too cumbersome. But again, in Ohio, it won by almost f uh, the the affirmative declaration that abortion access would be protected in the Ohio state constitution, won by almost 14 points, which is massive in a state that is, for all intents and purposes, red. And the Republican anti-abortion governor in Ohio was working against this this constitutional enshrinement. So it was a massive win. And once again, it was surprising to people because they thought it was going to be too confusing or interest was going to wane. But in fact, having to vote twice, I, I would contend, cements the connection between the attacks on access to reproductive health care and attacks on democracy itself and the mechanisms by which uh, Americans 
are able to participate in elections for who's going to govern them and 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 how. In August, the attempt was to raise the vote threshold for a uh, for a, a ballot initiative above sixty percent, and then in November it was to enshrine that right. And as you say, they voted no in August and yes in November to have the success as an abortion rights supporter. Michelle Goodman, I'm curious what you attribute to that success. What was your reaction to the outcome in Ohio? Well, it's not a surprise, uh, as Rebecca mentioned. And one can attribute this to any number of matters. Um, In August, this was not just a matter of people who support reproductive freedom and abortion rights, but was also a matter of people in Ohio pushing back against a legislature that they believed had really gone too far, making it difficult for voters um, to be able to express um, their interest by um, that initiative. But when we're thinking about abortion rights, one of the things that I've been saying is that it begs the question of any parent that looks across the table at their 10-year-old child and contemplates, well, if something harmful, devastating happens to their child, such as a rape, if that child should become a mother at 11 or 12 years old just because members of the state legislature say so. And clearly there are parents who are voting no, that it's harmful, that it's cruel. And they see examples all across the country post-Dobbs. In Ohio, in fact, what in fact they saw was that there was a 10-year-old girl who in fact had been raped and pregnant and after Dobbs had to flee the state of Ohio to get to Indiana in order to terminate that pregnancy. There were lawmakers that said after Dobbs that it was a hoax, that the girl did not exist. Well, they were proved wrong by reporters uh, who covered it, a reporter in particular who was actually um, at the uh, trial. Um, And then there were those that doubled down and said, well, even if she does exist, and others like her across the country, still there should be no exceptions to these abortion bans. And that includes in cases of rape or incest. And with that kind of vitriol, that kind of insensitivity, that which is really so unique, if we think about Roe v. Wade itself, 1973, it's a 7-2 to case. It's not close. Five of those seven justices were Republican appointed. Justice Blackman himself was put on the court by Richard Nixon. No one would say that Richard Nixon um, somehow was uh, really a Democrat or really progressive, pretending to be um, a conservative. Not at all. So what we see today is something that has not been consistent with where Americans have been. And Dobbs itself was not a decision consistent with the United States Supreme Court, not only in 1973 or 1992 in Planned Parenthood v. Casey, but it's important to note that there were a number of abortion cases that came before the Supreme Court between 1973 and prior to Dobbs. And consistently, the Supreme Court upheld the right for individuals to be able to terminate pregnancies. Yes, I remember, Rebecca, reading in your piece that it was essentially unclear which party would be more supportive of abortion rights some 50 years ago, meaning that the Republican position on this was quite different than it is today. 
Yes, there were some, I mean, when I, I knew some of this history and when I went back to do the research on who was saying what, when I was really taken aback. In fact, my, my piece that I published in the spring opens with an incredible speech that Shirley Chisholm, uh, the Congresswoman from New York and the first honorary co-president of NARAL, uh, delivered um, to the Republican Task Force on Earth Resources and Population in 1969. And in this speech, which is an incredible piece of writing and argument, she says the question is not can we justify abortions, but can we justify compulsory pregnancy, which of course is a question that speaks directly to the example that Michelle just gave and that I think millions of people across the country think about. Um, you know, can we justify compulsory pregnancy? And and whose, our own, our daughters, our our, our siblings. Um, and but the amazing thing about that speech is that it was entered into the congressional record in 1969 because the head of that Republican task force on earth resources and population was George W. Bush, who admired H.W., yeah. argument. And, you know, the first person in Congress, I believe, who actually proposed in 1970 a federal bill um, that would that would uh, legalize or make abortion accessible at a federal level was Bob Packwood, the former Oregon Republican. Um, and he actually fought incredibly fiercely for abortion rights and against the Hyde Amendment um, as a as a Republican and a man who would wind up resigning in 1995 after having been accused of serial sexual assault and harassment, right? The the politics around the stuff winding were, road, <laughs> very winding road for Bob Packwood. But but it's true that some of the people who fought most vociferously in advance of Roe, and then who fought against the restrictions like the Hyde Amendment, which is a legislative rider that went into effect just a couple years after Roe, that determined that state insurance programs could not be used to pay for abortions, which effectively made the procedure far more inaccessible to anybody who relied on a state insurance program, which means working class, poor Americans, more likely to be people of color. Um, it was it, there was incredibly in incredible inequity baked into Roe yes. even existed from the 70s. And there were a few politicians who really fought against it. And some of them were Republicans, including Packwood and Edmund Brooke from right. From so so let me ask listeners, you know, if you are a Republican or lean in that direction, would you like to see the party continue to toe the hard line on limiting or banning abortion access? Or would you like to see them moderate their position? If you're a Democrat or tend to vote that way, would you like to see Democratic Party, the Democratic Party plat platform do more to affirm its support for abortion rights? You can tell us at 866-733-6786 by emailing forum at kqed.org or finding us on our social channels. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about abortion rights and how the issue is playing out in U.S. elections with uh, Dr. Michelle Goodwin, professor of constitutional law and global health policy at Georgetown, and also with Rebecca Traster, writer-at-large for New York Magazine and The Cut. And with you, our listeners, what questions do you have about how abortion rights are impacting U.S. elections? If you're a Democrat, would you like to see the Democratic Party affirm its support for abortion rights more? Or if you're a Republican, would you like to see them moderate their position more or continue to toe the hard line that they have been towing? Email forum at kqed.org, post on our social channels at KQED Forum, or give us a call at 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. And of course, Michelle, in addition to the Ohio vote marking the seventh time that abortion rights supporters had a victory on their ballot initiatives, a lot of people attributed abortion rights to, you know, the defeat or at least the the takeover by Democrats of both chambers in Virginia, despite Governor, a Republican Governor Youngkin's attempts to try to put forward what he what he framed as a more moderate abortion restriction. Can you tell us what happened there? There is very compelling messaging that we've seen in these states, including in uh, Virginia. And again, this messaging centering on really vulnerable um, individuals, vulnerable women, vulnerable girls who have um, been forced um, into pregnancies that they did not want through rape. And then what the result being in states that have proposed these abortion bans or that have abortion bans on the books, making it um, what would seem almost impossible or very difficult to be able to terminate those pregnancies. And what we see are voters across the country responding back. And and here's part of the reason why. While we hear these stories in the aftermath of Dobbs that have involved women bleeding for, you know, more than a week, 10 days, two weeks, while doctors fear being able to intervene uh, in Texas because a doctor uh, could be fined uh, $100,000, risk incarceration for 99 years, risk losing their medical licenses to practice. We've seen that in Virginia as well. So there's the ways in which healthcare providers um, have been trapped in the aftermath of this. We've heard the horrible stories. Um, the 10-year-old girl that I mentioned from Ohio fleeing to Indiana. In Mississippi, the girl who's going into the seventh grade with a baby after a rape. We've heard the cases of women gestating um, fetuses that are dead, women in sepsis. I mean, just these horrible cases with women coming forward to give press conferences, to testify before Congress, uh, to come to their state legislatures and make appeals. And even more for those cases that aren't public, people understand this in their own families. And that is what we are seeing. And that's why in Virginia, 
we saw the results as we did. It's why we saw the results that we did in Kentucky with the governor being a, the Democratic governor, um, Bashir being able to stay in place and defeating the Trump supported um, attorney general who ran for the governorship. This matter touches home for so many people and they want the government out of their bedrooms. I think in your piece, Rebecca, you quoted um, someone as saying, even though Youngkin tried to rally Republicans around his more moderate 15-week ban, right, that, that essentially at this point, the electorate really just doesn't trust Republicans on abortion? Well, so that seems to be that Rachel Cohen at Vox wrote a very good piece about this. Um, and I think that increasingly that is one of the factors here is that there have been, you know, even in the states that have very extreme bans, there have been sort of oh exceptions in some cases per, on the books for certain medical conditions. And now we have journal people aren't abiding by those exceptions. There even there's been great reporting out there um, about pregnancies that fit under the the you know the description of a medical exception, and yet doctors won't perform the abortion because they're not sure whether they can do it legally without risking arrest. You know, um, and so people even who fit the exceptions aren't getting the care they need. That means those exceptions are understood increasingly as hollow, as lies, as yeah. dishonest, as they were always meant to be, and that that all of the Republicans' machinations around this, um, I think, are leading people to distrust them tremendously. And yet, and yet, there is caution about centering abortion. And even this piece by Nate Cohn in the New York Times, it says, Tuesday, last Tuesday was great for Democrats, but it doesn't change the outlook for 2024. Talk about why there are some cautionary notes in what they are, Rebecca. There's always cautionary notes because this party has been really ambivalent of, and the press that covers it. It's not just the party. It's the people who consult and advise the party. It's the people who've had power within the party. And it is the press that that in turn covers and helps guide that party who have not historically had comfort talking about this. One of the long-term problems around this is that when Roe stood, even as access under Roe was eroded more and more through Hyde and then after the rise of the Tea Party, through all of these state bans that went into effect and really decreased the number of people who could have access to care, these were not stories we were telling. It was treated as though A, Roe was complete and B, that it would last forever and that it was sort of hysterical to imagine that it would be overturned. And as a result, we do not have the party that now represents the interests of abortion rights and justice does not have muscle memory. There are a few excellent individual politicians who have been doing great work for a long time, but the party has to learn how to take this issue seriously to understand some of what Michelle is explaining about how Abortion rights and access are tied to family values, stuff that the right, the right stole all this language around family and freedom and, and applied it to an anti-abortion agenda. And quite honestly, Democrats who didn't fight for all the years that Roe stood permitted them to do that. And so there is tremendous hesitancy now, um, even from people who are watching these wins you know, stack up, that this is something that we can fight on because people don't yet know how to fight on it. They don't know. A lot of the people who've been doing this coverage for years don't understand how central an issue it is. And they don't even understand what the legal threats are and what the possibilities are. The, you know, Nate Cohn's piece was about, oh, there are going to be so many other things. It's different from state elections off. And 
parts of that argument, you know, when they're in low turnout off your elections, you get an ideologically motivated base and that isn't going to apply for a presidential year. And it's abortion's not going to be the only thing on the ballot. Well, of course it's not. Abortion is very rarely actually the only thing on the ballot, but abortion is very much a central question moving into 2024. And, and Democrats and the press that cover them need to learn how and why and think about what is motivating these voters to give Democrats this unbroken string of wins, which they should really take seriously from a strategic perspective. Let's go to caller Ron in Alameda. Ron, you're on. Hi, thank you. Um, at the beginning, they spoke, your guests pointed out that it, that uh, Roe v. Wade was actually a, a Nixon court accomplishment. Seven out of the nine were appointed by Nixon, including the uh, writer of the decision and the chief justice of the Supreme Court at that time. But coming coming now uh, to these days, why why is it an issue if states as red as Ohio, Indiana, of course, New York and California immediately enshrined it in the Constitution? So are you saying why that you can undercut... Why is it a national issue? Why isn't it just moot? Why isn't what moot? Dobbs, the Dobbs decision, the Roe v. Wade overturning moot? Is that what you're asking? Why isn't it just moot when all the states can just enshrine it like they've been doing uh, seven in a row, I think you said? Well, um, uh, let me me take your question to Michelle. So a couple things there. One is, of course, that, yes, once the voters voted in Ohio, didn't in fact make a six-week abortion ban that Republicans had put forward that I think was sort of on hold moot. Um, and it could be a strategy with regard to undercutting the power of overturning Roe v. Wade. But what are your thoughts on what Ron is saying, Michelle? Well, just a correction. So it wasn't a full Nixon court. It happened that Justice Blackman was put on the court by Nixon and that there were of that seven, five were Republican appointed. But the larger point uh, relates to what are fundamental liberties and fundamental rights. And one looks to those fundamental rights being protected by our federal government. They should be protected in states. We have a history in this country of grave laws involving sex discrimination against women uh, that were imposed by states. We have the history of Jim Crow uh, in the United States, where we can look to states like Mississippi, Alabama, Arkansas, Georgia, etc., holding on to vestiges of slavery, undermining African-Americans in their civil rights and civil liberties, along with their right to vote. And many of those states, save for uh, federal intervention at the levels of the Supreme Court or Congress with the enactment of the 1964 Civil Rights Act or 65 Voting uh, Rights Act, then we see states otherwise behaving in the ways in which, you know, they had since post-Reconstruction. So this idea about just leave certain fundamental rights to states, unfortunately, we've seen the legacy of states not willing to uphold the equality, the civil rights, the civil liberties of disfavored groups, whether they be women, historically with denying women, um, suppressing women's ability to vote, 
um, suppressing women's ability to be able to serve on juries, uh, enacting various laws that otherwise oppress women. And we could go through a litany of this. And in fact, it's worth Americans really having an understanding of this. Polly Murray, who is a predecessor to Ruth Bader Ginsburg at the ACLU, wrote a book on race laws in America, nearly 800 pages, single space, about the myriad laws in states that denied African-Americans, including African-American women, so much of what the Constitution holds. So then back to this question about it, are are these things moot and just leave them to the states? Well, you know, after Dobbs, what Justice Alito and the majority of the court said is that, in fact, these issues would be turned to the states. And what we see as you began the program with is that now seven times out of seven, those who support reproductive freedom and the right to an abortion have basically uh, won on these state ballot initiatives. Well, Paul is, um, I think, underscoring some of your points. The listener Paul writes, why are laws against abortion not a violation of the 13th Amendment's prohibition on involuntary servitude? It seems to me the state is commandeering a woman's body to produce a product, a baby, and directly and indirectly controls her life and actions, what she can well, eat and drink, various well, activities, sure. etc. Well, that, in fact, it's very important that uh, that your listener has brought that up. When we look at the 13th Amendment, which was ratified in 1865, it banned slavery and involuntary servitude. And in my in-depth research on the 13th Amendment and abolition leading to that time, there's important matters for today's conversations that have been left out. Most people imagine American slavery as something that was awful, and it was, uh, but they sort of think about some bucolic field and people picking puffs of cotton um, or cutting sugar cane, and that that's the beginning and the end of the story with American slavery. But of course, it was a much broader enterprise, a much more sophisticated enterprise, a much more pernicious enterprise. And it's one that legions of abolitionists wrote about, documented, and that was the uh, rapes, the sexual assaults, the course of pregnancies. Uh, In fact, Thomas Jefferson uh, famously wrote, and this letter can be seen at the Monticello website, about how it was actually more profitable, more sensible to stock one's plantation with girls and women because they're turning a profit every year or two. And what he's speaking about, the former president, what he's speaking about are the sexual assaults. And they're speaking about the rapes, about American slavery relying upon literally the coercive, forced, compulsory reproduction enforced against girls eight, nine, ten years old. There are stories about girls committing suicide um, when and that being documented by abolitionists who who travel to the South. And so when we see this abolition of not only slavery, but involuntary servitude, it is an involuntary servitude that was forced upon black girls and black women throughout the time of American slavery. And the 13th Amendment abolishes that. Michelle Goodwin, professor of constitutional law and global health policy at Georgetown. Her books include Policing the Womb, Invisible Women, and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Rebecca Traister is with us. Her recent piece in The Cut is Where is the Biden Abortion Agenda? And uh, Rebecca, I do want to ask you about that. Where is Biden on the issue of abortion? And what is uh, his administration doing now that they have seen this string of victories? Well, I think that they are, you know, 
I think that they are thinking really hard about how they're going to approach this. I think that there is one of the questions has been, what is the federal strategy look like? Right. Then this has been one of some of the some of the naysayers about will abortion continue to be a potent electoral force going into 2024 have argued that it's one thing when you're talking about state policy, but that federal elections are very different. But in fact, there is an enormous amount at stake on a federal level. First of all, we know that Republicans have, since Dobbs, promised to enact a national ban. Now that they know how unpopular and what a losing issue it is, they are trying to wiggle around it. You hear Donald Trump trying to back away from it a little bit, but they can't actually back away from it because they have built their current um base on a rabid anti-abortion uh electorate the, their their base will not permit them many of the people who fund them will not actually permit them to move that far away from abortion but they're going to try to pretend that they're going to be reasonable and moderate i think glenn youngkin's attempt in virginia last week you know is an example of that and again one that voters didn't believe but if the republicans took House, Senate, and White House, they could pass a federal ban where the question of the state's ability um, it would be moot. So they could make abortion inaccessible in New York, in California. Um, and so that is a massive federal argument. It is also true that if Democrats or people who wanted to make abortion accessible nationally again to essentially undo the damage done by Dobbs, if they captured the House, the Senate, and retook the White House, they could pass legislation that could ensure access nationally and basically undo what Dobbs did. Would it then meet a Supreme Court challenge? Possibly, but that then that's going to happen, right? And and there needs to be a conversation about the Supreme Court too. That's separate from that. Additionally, a lot of um, there's there's recent talk that people are kind of having these conversations out loud for the first time. And and Mary Ziegler, who's who's very smart about abortion law and history, has pointed out that the Comstock regulations that are these 1870s laws prohibiting the distribution of material deemed looter offensive could be reinterpreted. They're on the books in Congress. They stand right now. They're not they're unenforced. But that a president, even without a governing majority in the House and the Senate, could reinterpret the Comstock laws to make mifepristone medication abortion and even some medical tools used in surgical abortion to ban their use, also doing considerable damage on a federal national level to the availability of abortion. So these are massive pressing and urgent federal questions that are going to be relevant to every House, Senate, and certainly executive branch race in this country in 2024. We're talking with Rebecca Tracer, writer-at-large for New York Magazine and The Cut. We're also talking with Dr. Michelle Goodwin, professor of constitutional law and global health policy at Georgetown. We're talking about abortion rights and how that issue is energizing Democrats as we head into a presidential election year and what kind of impact it might have. We're also talking about the state of abortion access in this country, and you can share your questions or comments at 866-733-6786 by emailing forum at kqed.org or finding us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or Discord at KQED Forum. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim.
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking abortion rights this hour and how that issue is playing out in U.S. elections, what it could mean for next year as well with uh, Rebecca Traster, writer at large for New York Magazine and The Cut, and Michelle Goodwin, a professor at Georgetown Law, and also with you, our listeners. What questions do you have about how abortion rights are affecting U.S. elections? If you're a Democrat or tend to vote that way, would you like to see the party do more to affirm their support or center abortion rights? If you're a Republican or lean that way, would you like to see the party continue to toe a tough line on abortion access or see them moderate their position? You can email forum at kqed.org, post on our social channels, or call us at 866-733-6786. And you are definitely weighing in. Elizabeth writes, the situations your guests have referenced show that the law is actually barbaric. I think I would vote for a Republican for the first time who was pro-abortion over a Democrat that was against abortion. One thing that I have not heard mentioned in the media is how the time, the length of a pregnancy, the count they count it from the first day of your last period. So for example, if you were considered to be six weeks pregnant, in fact, you would probably be about five weeks pregnant when many women don't even know they're pregnant at that point. Vic from San Francisco writes, I haven't voted for a Democrat since 1980 because I am pro-life. I am glad Roe was overturned and the issue is sent back to the states. Years ago, my wife wanted an abortion and the rule was that you had to get spousal consent. I did not give my consent and we had the child. We saved a life. I am, however, in favor of abortion if the woman's health is in danger. I am not in favor of a rape exception because while a terrible situation, an innocent life is at stake. Noel on Discord writes, the number of abortions went up, especially in the free states neighboring the ban states after Dobbs. As usual, bans do not stop abortions, but the extremists don't want to follow reality-based evidence. The majority of Americans from all political stripes do not want to ban abortion. Democrats need to run on this issue for as long long as it takes. Michelle, I saw a piece in the New York Times affirming what Noel was talking about, where essentially, actually, abortions went up just like by 0.2% because states were shoring up uh, their ability to provide it, uh, as well as realizing that there were needs within their own state that they may not have realized were being were were being improved in terms of access for people who were seeking abortion care. But of course, the many people who did end up carrying the pregnancy to term who wanted an abortion, in most cases, the uh, the report sites were women who were of low income, immigrant women and women of color, black and brown women as well. And that just continues to play out whether the broader stats, right, are showing right. that it hasn't hasn't necessarily stopped all abortions or that's, even yeah. That's right. So 
in, in some ways, what one finds is a, a new version of a modern-day underground railroad where women and girls who have the capacity and wherewithal, financial and, and, and more, uh, to be able to leave the states where they would not be able to terminate the pregnancy and go to states where that freedom exists. Now, that's similar to a pre-row time where there were women of means who would head to New York or head to um, Europe uh, in order to terminate their pregnancies or go to Mexico, go to Canada. And what we see is that in the post-Dobbs world, the post-Dobbs United States, there are individuals who are doing the same, except they can do that while staying in the United States, but going to Illinois, to California, uh, to New York, to Colorado, uh, to New Mexico um, in order to terminate pregnancies. But what we're also seeing now are um, spreading abortion deserts, meaning that the more states that have enacted bans or bans that um, have time limits, then it's not so easy to just go the next state over or two states over, making it far more difficult. Some of the concerns include um, needing to secure child care. Many of the people who terminate pregnancy are women who are mothers who have children who would then need to find child care. Taking time off from work if you're um, poor, your working class mom can be very difficult. Even if you're middle income can be very difficult. So in the cases where there are individuals who've not been able to make it out of state, um, much of that has been due to financial hardships. But I think it's also important to expand the conversation in terms of the next level of legal threats. That includes um, state lawmakers um, pushing forward bills where they would impose the death penalty against uh, women who terminate pregnancies or their doctors. In South Carolina, we saw that stuff surface. We saw that surface in Louisiana, not successfully, but surface. We've seen legislators then um, in the state of Texas, um, pre-Dobbs, with a kind of bounty hunter provision in the state's law there, allowing individuals to track down and sue those who aid and abet in the termination of a pregnancy. Uh, we see the state's attorney general in Alabama um, suggesting that he wants to target individuals who leave out of state in order to terminate pregnancies. And then we've also seen another measure, which involves uh, extraditing doctors from other states where they perform abortions to criminally punish them in states uh, where abortion happens to be illegal. So these are questions not just about the individual patient and her reproductive freedom, but also now these other legal questions that are emerging post-Dobbs that are really important questions about the rest of our Constitution, <laughs> the Bill of Rights, and also about criminal justice. And Rebecca, even in states where they were able to enshrine a right to abortion, what are you hearing in terms of uh, efforts to roll back abortion access or ways that those ballot victories for abortion access are attempting to be undercut? Right. So I am really glad that you asked that question, because one of the things I've noted about two of the callers is the confidence that this has just gone back to the state so that every state just gets to decide, right? And we have these, 
you know, the seven examples of the ballot referendum. Um, but I want to talk about a couple of other examples to just demonstrate exactly how, um, you know, untenable returning this to the states in our current political array is. Because North Carolina has not had a ballot referendum. North Carolina has a Democratic governor, Roy Cooper, uh, and it has a Republican legislature that uh, he was democratically elected, Roy Cooper. Republican legislature that's been wanting to uh, ban and institute a 12-week ban on abortions, the most restrictive limit that the state has had. But Roy Cooper, the democratically elected governor, Plan to veto it. There was a midterm election in 2022 in which a woman named Trisha Cotham ran vowing to protect abortion rights as a Democrat and was elected by the people of North Carolina. In the spring, she decided to change parties, giving the right in North Carolina a supermajority with which they could override the democratically elected governor's veto of that ban which creates a ban in that state that is, you know, 10 million people that changes healthcare policy and access, right? And this is, voters came out and voted for a candidate who was going to protect abortion access. And that candidate flipped in Wisconsin. This was not a ballot initiative. There was a state Supreme Court race in Wisconsin. People spent a lot of money on both sides. Abortion was the central question. The the judge who was open about being on the side of abortion protections, Janet Protasevich, won the election in a kind of a landslide in, again, an off-year, off weirdly timed spring election. And Republicans have spent the month since talking about impeaching her. So, so the idea, there are also a lot of states that do not permit, and in fact, anti-abortion right-wing politicians are working to keep more from even allowing these kinds of ballot initiatives to get on ballots. There are plenty of states where there is no possibility for voters to come out and make the direct decision. There are lots of states, North Carolina is another example of where a Republican legislator is leg- legislature is working to limit the powers of the Democratic governor and to draw maps that are going to ensure, redraw district maps and gerrymander in a way that's going to ensure an anti-abortion right wing remains in power, thus deciding whether or not voters are ever going to be able to make those choices for themselves. So anybody who's out there thinking, oh, each state can just do what these seven have done is not that's not right. That is not the current political situation in the states. We've been asking listeners what they'd like to see their respective parties do around this issue, given what we've been seeing this last year or so since Roe v. Wade was struck down. And Alila on Discord writes, I would like to see Republicans continue to lean into their extreme and unpopular position, which will likely keep more Democrats in office. As a Democrat, yes, finally enshrine the right into the U.S. Constitution the minute the left has a majority and ratify the ERA. Matthew writes, I think it's interesting that in a lot of states, a man can kill another man to avoid getting a broken nose and call it standing your ground. Why then can't a woman avoid her unwanted pregnancy by claiming the same in order to avoid having her life turned upside down, completely turned upside down in ways that no one else can even begin to comprehend? Let me go to caller Chuck in Palo Alto. Chuck, you're on. Hi. Uh, Yeah, yeah, I look at this on a little bit more basic level, which is... um, This is, to me, more about men trying to control women's behavior. 
they picked this example because it sounds great. It's the family values thing, but it's really, to me, it's really not a whole lot different than uh, uh, in Islam, where they try and quote unquote protect the woman by wearing her, by making her wear a hijab and those sorts of things. When really what they're doing is controlling their behavior. Okay, well, let me remind listeners, you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Michelle Goodwin and Rebecca Traster about abortion uh, ballot initiatives, how they have been winning in the last year, and how they might affect U.S. elections. You are listening to Forum. Let me go to James in Oakland next. James, you're on. Yeah, um, wouldn't it behove Democrats to fight harder to change the Constitution for the equal right protection for people, including women? You know, so if that protection is in the Constitution, wouldn't that um, hold abortion rights for women? Uh, James, thanks. Michelle, your thoughts about it in terms of equal protection? Well, well, there has been the ratification of the ERA, and there's the hope that uh, it will actually be signed by the archivist into law uh, right now with Congress. But, you know, one of the things that your callers have mentioned in thinking about this as a collective that, you know, one, is is there one way of thinking about this as a kind of anti-woman movement by some men? And it's true that the United States was governed by coverture laws which made it legal uh, to rape a wife, which made it legal to beat one's wife. In fact, in the Dobbs decision, Justice Alito cites to um, to Hale and Blackstone, who were uh, lawyers whose treatises uh, spoke exactly to this, saying that women lacked independent personality and that their personalities were subsumed within that of their husband, such that there couldn't be a man who could rape himself because the wife just simply didn't exist. The woman didn't exist. And when you think about the kind of cruelties also embedded in your comments uh, in the comments from your listeners, you know, it's worth noting that the Supreme Court said in 2016 in a case called Whole Woman's Health v. Hellerstead that a woman is 14 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term than by having an abortion. This is based on research that is well known and not refuted. The United States leads all its um, fellow industrialized nations in terms of maternal mortality. We rank somewhere around 55th in the world. Pregnancies can be a deadly proposition in the United States. And when we think about poverty and we think about race, black women are about three and a half times more likely nationally to die during pregnancy than their white counterparts. But that figure actually grows depending upon what city or county we're talking about in the United States with much higher figures in these states that are anti-abortion, where then it could be five times more likely, 10 times more likely, 15 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term. So that all must be a part of the conversation. And Mm -hmm. with that, it does very much seem anti-woman, anti-girl to have male legislatures um, does determining this. And let me just add one point to that. Mississippi, which brought us the Dobbs decision, um, has a legislature that is over 84% male, right, that brought this case to overturn Roe v. Wade. 
Let me read this comment from Marcy, who writes, and maybe for you, Rebecca, Marcy writes, as a retired brand strategist and lifelong Democrat, I would like to see the party change its messaging around abortion. It's often stronger in voting to be against something. I think it would be stronger and more motivating to be against compulsory pregnancy rather than pro-abortion. Abortion, the word, is also associated with the other side, and the idea of being for destruction of something can give the listener a queasy feeling. But the opposite idea is more rallying. What do you think? Well, I mean, I think lots of people are are very free to have all kinds of opinions about language. I actually think that being for abortion is not about the destruction of something. I think that being wanting to be on the side of having the full range of reproductive health care access is about creating something. It's about cre- it's about protecting self-determination, autonomy. It is about freedom. It is about building families under the circumstances that those who, who want to build them um, want to see that happen. I do not see abortion as inherently destructive. And I think that there is a way in which a lot of the very painful and cruel stories that we're hearing about in the news and that we're, you know, we're talking about here in this hour, um, reflect that being yeah. anti-abortion is destructive well, and, and cruel. And- yeah. Well, let me just follow up quickly on that, just because we're coming so close to the end of the hour, which is there is some sign that the rhetoric or their ability to use the word and so on is 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 getting stronger among Democrats or getting less squeamish, I think, was a headline that I read in the New York Times. But as you point out, it has to go beyond the rhetoric now, like even if you are affirming your support for it as the Democratic Party, that they need to do more. And I just want to ask you what that more looks like. What do you think uh, the party would need to do to, to see, to show people who are coming out to support abortion rights that Democrats will walk the talk? Well, I think they need to really think seriously about the place that abortion plays, its connections to so many other things. There is a way in which the right wing is is mimicking its abortion playground play, playbook when it comes to its approach to banning gender affirming health care, its attack on on trans Americans and, and families. Um it's the the connections I mentioned earlier between the attack on our democratic systems, this the kind of overturning of the voters' will in the states that I was describing a few minutes ago. You know, the Democrats have labored really hard to talk about election denialism and the perils of you know to our democracy right now. And abortion is the the rollback of abortion rights has been a lens that has made that attack on democracy itself incredibly clear to voters. And that's one of the things that's being communicated through these votes. And I think the party really needs to understand that abortion doesn't, it's not in its own little icky corner, which is honestly how it's been treated by politicians and many of the press who cover them for decades. Abortion is at the center of, uh, you know, along with all kinds of other forms of health care and all kinds of other economic policies, it's the center of of family life, it's community, it is woven into our feelings about how we participate in this democracy. And I think Democrats really need to think seriously about how central it is as they move into talking about it to tw- into 2024. Well, the listener writes, our real-life example of abortion policies that my wife in the Army posted at Presidio lost a fetus after a heartbeat was detected. She had to get a procedure to remove the lifeless remains. If the time was now and if her posting was in a red state, would she have been able to receive the necessary medical care? Alabama Senator Tom Tuberville would say no. 
Rebecca Traster, writer at large for New York Magazine in the Cut. Michelle Goodwin, professor of constitutional law and global health policy at Georgetown. Thank you both. My thanks to Dan Zoll for producing today's segment. My thanks to the forum team, which includes so many, Caroline Smith, Mark Nieto, Marlena Jackson-Rotondo, and Susie Britton. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.